we are considered first responders and during natural emergencies and so forth, we're required to be here. We don't get days off because of inclement weather. We need to be here through thick and thin. Um, so it was just natural progression, I guess, for a, a global pandemic. We didn't see it coming, but we always knew that when required, uh, we, we have to answer the call to come in. And that's what we did. That was Joseph Petruzzi, a shift supervisor who works at the Astoria Power Plant in Queens, New York. Astoria is owned by a competitive power generation company, Eastern Generation, and brings 959 megawatts of electricity to the Big Apple. You'll hear more from him and what it was like to be sequestered at a power plant for weeks in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, away from home, family, and friends. For some energy workers, that's what it took to keep our country running while everything else was shut down. This is Energy Solutions, a new podcast from the Electric Power Supply Association. Listen in as we unpack the stories and trends behind America's changing electric grid. I'm your host, Todd Snitchler, EPSA's president and CEO. We always say reliable electricity is essential and at the heart of our economy, but it was just about one year ago that we gained new appreciation for that fact. The COVID-19 pandemic sent the globe and the United States into lockdown as we grappled with how to control the virus's spread. Today, we're looking back at how we kept the lights on, how we watched in real time as a transformed world transitioned the way we consume electricity and what it all means going forward. EPSA represents competitive power suppliers, companies that build, operate, and invest in power generation resources. As the pandemic spread and public safety measures were implemented, EPSA members responded quickly to keep plants and operations running, working closely with all sectors of the industry and public officials. Essential staff were identified and safety measures were taken to ensure that they remained healthy. As a result of the industry's preparation, response, and collaboration, Americans stayed connected to electricity, even as they hunkered down. Throughout the year, our member companies have gone beyond just providing power, donating millions in community aid, and assisting with volunteer efforts to help those struggling with unemployment, financial hardship, and virtual schooling. In total, EPSA members dedicated more than $6 million to local aid efforts. They supported local food banks and emergency responders. They even donated laptops to help students adjust to virtual schooling. But our companies are just one part of the many working to bring power to Americans 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Rich Dewey is the president and CEO of the New York Independent System Operator, or NISO. Rich has been part of pandemic planning exercises, but even he was surprised when he had to actually put the plan into action. I I actually had to go back and look. It was in 2009 um, that the world first uh, started taking pandemic planning seriously when the H1N1 bird flu presented a real risk to to human life and safety. And that was actually a project I worked on in 2009 to develop a pandemic plan. And it was uh, was a little bit weird at the time because you you think about pandemics and plagues and and it's like medieval kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't really anticipate that this is a real risk or something we really have to, to, to care about. But we did put together a pandemic plan. Um, we scrutinized it amongst ourselves. We put it on the shelf. And as part of our normal business continuity efforts that we go through every year, you know, we would pull that plan down off the shelf and say, gee, we probably are never going to need this, but let's take a look at it and see if it continues to make sense. 
And then I remember when we started seeing some of the news coming out of China in, uh, in December and early January, um, you know, I walked into the office of our business continuity specialist and I say, this might be crazy and I might be overreacting, but we got to really take a look at this plan because this could be something we need. And, uh, you know, within a month's time, it, it just, it came on fast. And it right. was, it was, when, when it was apparent that we had a real um, public safety, public health disaster, potential disaster coming at us, um, we, uh, we were ready. Uh, you know, so there was adjustments we had to make, of course, because, you know, each one of these viruses is a little bit different. Um, we had to assess what we did know, what we didn't know, you know, how do you really catch this, uh, you know, this virus? And, uh, but by and large, we followed the script that we had in place. So it was, uh, it was fortunate. It was good planning. Um, but, uh, at least we had a game plan in place that when we needed to move quickly, we could. Sure. And serendipity, uh, you know, kind of arrives again that you happen to be involved with the planning way back more than a decade ago. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you yeah. actually executed on some of those things and some of the sacrifices that were made in order to keep the lights on? Yeah. The, f- the first thing we did was we moved all the non-essential people out of the building, right? So the, the most critical function is those control room operators that sit there 24-7, 365 yep. and manage the flows of power across the state. Um, when you think about the job that they do and how important that is to New York, the economy in New York, the health and safety of the citizens of New York, um, we only have about 50 people that know how to do that. And when we started thinking about um, what we were learning about how quickly people can spread this virus amongst each other and how dangerous it is, um, we quickly realized we could go through 50 people really quickly and then have sure. a real problem. Um, so the first thing we do is we took all the non-essential people that didn't need to be in the building and we just sent them home. And we made that decision on a Friday and it was going to take effect the next Monday. So that was probably the most impactful to our business because we were not set up and we don't have a, we don't have a corporate culture or even the infrastructure to run the company that way. But we said, we're just going to have to learn this and we're going to have to figure it out. Um, so then we had about a week where the operators were still coming into the control room every day, but they were going home at night and they were going about their business and protecting their families. And then we realized that, you know, uh, we saw the numbers going up in New York City. You, you, you saw the news reports. Everybody yep. did. And we realized we, we don't know how quickly, how much time we have before we have to protect these individuals so that we can do the job that we need to do. So we had about a week and we, we rushed out. Uh, we procured a whole bunch of trailers. Um, we established secure zones around the, the, the control room itself to make sure that people didn't interact with the operators that were doing those uh, doing those critical functions. Uh, we, so we got some uh, uh, cooking staffs because we didn't know if you, could, uh, if you could get this virus through food that you would sure. get from a restaurant. So we said, since we don't know, we've got to be really careful here. So we got food services individuals that we, we got, they agreed to, uh, you know, to fulfill this role for us. Uh, and then we sat down with the operations team and we said, guys, if it ever comes to this, uh, we need volunteers. Who's willing to do it? And, you know, I was just so uh, impressed with our team. Every hand went up, literally every hand went up. So we had more volunteers than we needed. Um, And they think about the, you know, the the fear and everything that was going on in, 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 in society, you know, they were willing to separate themselves from their families, leave their families at home. They had kids, they had spouses and, uh, and move on site and live in these trailers just to make sure that they could insulate themselves and protect themselves from, uh, uh, you know, from, from catching this virus and giving it to each other. 
Um, we did a couple of things. We brought uh, medical personnel on board. So we were constantly every single day talking to each individual, assessing the, their, not only their physical health, but their mental health. So we brought some mental health professionals on board just to give them an opportunity to talk to them. Um, and, and as importantly, we made those services available to their families. So you recognize you have an operator that's moving on site, um, their spouse and their, and their children are now dealing with these issues at home that's right. and, and, come and, and battling some of the same you know, concerns that you might have. So we made these services available to the families as well. Uh, and, and the operators had to know that, you know, the comfort that we were, you know, taking care of their families and, 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 and you know, thinking of them and giving them that outlet. So that was an important piece of that as well. What did you learn? And now that we're a year into this, as you look at your, your old, I'll call it your old uh, pandemic plan, and then how you're looking at maybe what changes and updates might need to be made as you look at where we go from here forward. Yeah, sure. So some of the things uh, we learned uh, is the importance of, of physical spacing within the rotations themselves, right? So um, w- w- if we have an operator, you know, it's a, a crew. So the crews are seven people and, and those men and women all work together and they, they sit in the same room. It's a very, very large room. Um, but a lot of the communication they need to have between their various positions is important to have to the extent that we can separate them physically in a bigger space and put some shielding up between them, you know, that kind of thing, right. recognizing that, um, um, that even though, um, you know, they're, they're, they're all following the same sort of protocols, it, it's vitally important that they maintain their space even within the job. So at least as far as this virus and the way it transmits, um, that's an important piece of that. You know, some of the things as I look forward down the road, uh, you know, if we ever encounter, encounter a mutation or, 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 or a strain of, of this virus or, or another virus, you know, I think we probably need to think about, is there a way that we can do these same jobs and maybe not be in the same room? Right. So that's a learning um, that as we go forward and once we get on the other side of this, that's something we probably got to think about uh, sure. just to find, put a fine point on, on the overall pandemic plan. Sure. I'm going to ask you what, what I think could be the hardest question, but what's the one thing that you're most proud of about your team and about how things worked over the last year as we worked through this whole thing together? I'm most proud of the sacrifice that the operators made. I mean, every one of these individuals, um, you know, had a family at home, have have a home life, um, and uh, you know, it was it was almost no gap between when we solicited volunteers and they all raised their hand. So, you know, I, I think it's everybody recognized that the job that we do, how important it is to everybody, how important it is to New York, and uh, you know, and I was just so uh, impressed uh, with the level of sacrifice that each one of those did. Um, also the, the, the actual, uh, you know, we continue to follow these practices. So we, we've made the decision. It wasn't necessary to sequester anymore, but the risks are still very real. Mm-hmm. So in the several months that we've had since we ended the sequestration, um, you know, these operators, these men and women, they go home every single night, but they still have to, you know, stay out of crowded spaces. They still have to maintain good protocols. So they're paying attention to everything they need to do, not only when they're on the job, but when they're home as well. COVID also impacted how Americans used electricity, changing the way NISO plans for when and where power is needed. Yeah, certainly the, the reduction in demand was remarkable, right? The whole economy just shut down. Uh, New York City was impacted by in a much greater extent than, than the other parts of the state. But we were looking at, uh, you know, 10 to 12 percent uh, demand reductions um, 
and, and even higher at certain times in New York City. So not only was it overall where we lose, using less power, um, but you also saw the shift as, as every company started working from home. Uh, you started to see sort of the residential load pockets, um, you know, use power more, even though a lot of the, uh, the commercial and industrial load pockets went down. So it was a shifting in terms of what you saw. Um, it, it, it's still uncertain, you know, assuming this vaccine rollout works, works well and assuming that we can return to life as normal, you know, what's, the, what's normal going to look like? Um, and, and that's the thing where, you know, our, our load forecasters are spending a lot of time looking at the different scenarios. And we saw a, a time shifting as well, you know, so, sure. so the, the, the ramp in the morning, um, you know, happened a little bit earlier than previously because you don't have the commute time before everybody yep. in the office it's kind of you get up you get out of bed you fire up your computer and and, and you kind of see that ramp up uh, and, then the, and then the curve has been a little bit flatter so mm -hmm. um, it's uh it's definitely something we got to we got to keep our eyes on um, i think that some of these changes will be somewhat permanent you know there are companies that have gone to the full remote model um, it's it's hit my family my son works in software support and his company close their building, let the lease lapse, and they're never wow. back to the office. So, you know, people are, are experimenting with those kind of models. So, Yeah. Well, you mentioned the changes that are happening both in our industry and outside for the customers that utilize the power that we generate and you make sure arrives. Can, can you predict how market participants and generators may need to adapt? Have you started to think about how that may change as we look over the horizon a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think that... Um, I'm not sure. I think the changes that we're seeing in the industry um, uh, with respect to electrification are going to have a much bigger impact than than you know what we're going to see as a result of, of COVID. I, I sure. think as a result of COVID, you know, there's going to be the economic question of how quickly does the does uh, does the economy bounce back? You saw this in 2009 where there was a big trough and then eventually it yeah. got back. Um, and and how what's the what's the the slope of that of that curve? Um, you know, coupled with that now is with a lot of these climate goals um, for uh, decarbonization of the economy, um, you know, what, what happens to electrification of transportation and building stock? And I think that, you know, will will have a much more uh, remarkable impact on, on terms of demand than, than, uh, than COVID will. Great. That's helpful. I'm glad that you mentioned some of the environmental issues because New York State is one of the most aggressive states in the country with ambitious climate law uh, okay. and is trying to drive innovation and deployment of those types of resources. Can you explain or can you talk to us a little bit about how you think that might impact on the operations of the grid of the future as you look at, as you just noted, you know, there's there's going to be changes coming. You know, how do you envision some of that changing the operations or the the way the grid actually functions, or, or if you think, you know, it will just navigate through it and it won't change it. I think it'll change it a, a great deal. I think that when you start looking at some of the, uh, the targets that are laid out under the CLCPA, um, you know, the, the, the wind and solar and, and, and storage resources, uh, well, wind and solar, they're, they're, they're less predictable. Um, you know, they're, they're subject to the weather. So you've got to start planning for what are the backstop uh, sources, that you're going to need to have in place for when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining because those days do happen right um storage gives an amazing opportunity to uh 
uh, to be able to fill in some of those gaps. Um, and you can take advantage of overproduction during times of high wind and, and high solar and then, and then have that available for, for the gaps when, uh, when those resources aren't available. But the scheduling of that becomes incredibly complex, right? You've got to make sure that, that, uh, that you understand and you manage and measure the state of charge of every one of these storage resources. You've got to think about the economic impact of, of you know when's the right time to charge them not only when you have excess electricity but we want to schedule it so that consumers are protected to the greatest extent and and you're managing those costs so it's it's just a whole dimension of of grid operation that's that's more complicated than we have today so we're going to need to have tools to make sure that we can do that we're going to need to have market rules so that uh, so that suppliers and and quite honestly consumers um, understand and make smart decisions um, so that we can do this as economically as possible. How can we be supportive and help you as you try to work through some of those issues and we still find ourselves in the position to provide the solutions that you need in order to keep the grid reliable? Yeah, so you know it's it's constant uh, engagement and involvement in the stakeholder process. We've got a, a stakeholder process that that uh, you know it's not my rules; it's our rules, right? In terms of how these markets operate, and and everybody has a say and is involved in making sure that uh, there's number one the right resources in place to maintain reliability. Because you're right, nobody has there's zero appetite for for loss of service. But at the same time, you know these are business operations, and people deserve the right to make a fair rate of return. And, and we've got to make sure that we are appropriately pricing the services. So number one, consumers get value for what they're paying for. Number two, uh, the suppliers and the providers and the people that are making these investments uh, can be assured you know, that their investments are going to be valued and protected and, and, and they've got an opportunity to, to earn a return on that. Um, you know, some of the things, and, and I, I brought this out too, and when I was talking to my state of the state, state of the grid speech, um, you know, we have had a lot of conflict in New York between the policy of, of New York state government towards, you know, uh, climate and the electric system and decarbonization right. is being quite uh, in conflict with what we have seen from the federal government for the last few years. Um, you know, the, the, the political changes that we're seeing now, you know, there is much more alignment between what we anticipate for an energy policy at the federal level with what New York State has been trying to do. So that creates an opportunity for us, quite honestly, uh, as, as, as an industry and as a community uh, to, to address some of these uh, address some of these market rule market rules that have caused so much conflict uh, in a meaningful and productive way so that we can provide, number one, the assurance that the market is going to provide the signal that investors want to see. Number right. two, that we're getting the kind of performance and, and attributes out of the electric system that are valuable for consumers. And, and then everybody's you know, in violent agreement and alignment that reliability is, is the number one objective. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, we're nearing the end of our uh, question and answer, and I always like to do a rapid fire set of questions that maybe are a little less serious, but still energy focused. So with that, I'll kick off my first question. What energy topics do you think get mentioned in the State of the Union address? Um, I, offshore wind, I think, is going to be a big, uh, a, a big push. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. It's been kind of stalemated um, at the federal level. Um, I think that uh, that topic and, and the success that other countries have been able to show with uh, 
uh, with the successful deployment of offshore wind is probably the biggest boost opportunity for the climate, uh, the energy, the energy climate uh, agenda. Okay. Do electric vehicles go mainstream in the next four years? No. Oh. Uh, that's Rich Dewey's uh, suggestion. And until the cost of a gallon of gas is hot, is higher than the cost to charge that battery uh, by more than just a little, I don't think people buy too many electric vehicles. Okay. So that answers my next one. I'll, I'll skip that. So can federal and state tension between markets and state policies be resolved? And will it be? Yes, they can. And I predict that it will be resolved. And I'm actually pretty optimistic. I've been in conversation with uh, um, uh, all the commissioners down at the FERC. Um, I think that there is uh, definitely a, uh, an interest to show that uh, these policies and markets can coexist. And, uh, you know, I, I think you'll see that play out. And I predict that uh, we'll have a solution in New York this year. Great. Well, thank you again, Rich. We appreciate you being our first guest and for participating. We look forward to working with you in the future uh, as we have in the past and uh, certainly appreciate your time and all the great things that were done through the COVID pandemic. And hopefully we move on to the next thing that we have to be concerned about and we get this behind us sooner rather than later. Sure. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Grid operators and control room staff played a key role in keeping power flowing. But what about the workers that operate the power plants themselves? Let's go back to Joe Petruzzi at Eastern Generation's Astoria plant. During the pandemic, a lot changed. Right off the uh, bat, there was a lot of logistics that needed to happen. We had meetings and discussions on how we were going to isolate, specifically the operations department, um, the control room operators. Um, we have a limited supply of control room operators and everyone's concern here was ensuring that they were safe and able to come to work to do the job because without them, we can't generate electricity. Right. How did you and your role ensure that the other essential personnel could be safe and get the work done that they needed to get done? We were, I want to say, a little relaxed in our dealings with the sequestered fellas. So my work crew, for example, we weren't concerned about passing or catching COVID-19 because we were all cleared. We were sure. safe. So when we were amongst ourselves, we were okay. Um, we kept our distance, but we, it wasn't so strict. Um, as far as other station, uh, station personnel, um, we were all given orders and informed our men to stay away from everyone, to avoid contact. Um, everyone wore masks at all times. Um, any station personnel who saw us, they were to avoid us. They were to actually make room for us and let us go our way. So they would move out of the way, take a different route. Sure. Um, as I said, we had secure areas that no one was allowed entry other than the sequestered personnel. And that was strictly adhered to. So what was it like for you and for the other folks in the generating station to have to be sequestered for those long periods of time in and out, not, not able to interact with family, you know, not, not go home at night, but be, you know, required to stay put on site. Mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting. Um, in the beginning, it was like anything else. It was new. It was unknown. So it was exciting and you didn't have time to focus on what you were missing out on. Sure. Um, 
being we work 12-hour shifts and it's a rotating shift, um, there are times where I might not see my family for three or four days just because I'm on a shift. Right. I'm working a, a midnight shift. So with that, the first three, four, five days being locked in here, you didn't really notice that you were missing family or friends because it was sort of normal not to see them for, you know, this amount of time. Sure. But once you got about a week away, um, a week into it, everything fell into a standard routine of, you know, waking up, work for 12 hours, kill a little bit of time before dinner, maybe spend another hour or so up and then it was right to sleep. So there's not, in a 12-hour day, work day, there's not a lot of free time as sure. much as people may think. Um, but after the first week, you started feeling the you're missing out on family, uh, seeing that friendly face, joking around with your kids, holding your wife, just sitting there at the couch, you know, watching TV, something along those lines, taking a walk. Um, as it progressed, everyone spoke to their family every day, probably numerous times a day, but it's not the same, not physically being there with them. Sure. By the end of our third week, I will tell you, we couldn't wait to get out of here. It, there was such an excitement buildup to finally that we served our time. Sure. And, you know, we did our part to help out and, now we finally get to go be with our loved ones again. And if you would ask everyone here, we'd all be happy to do it again, if you can believe that. We've learned uh, the human factor is our most important asset. Um, that was a concern and one of the uh, strong reasons why we decided to, for a sequestration here. Um, the control room board operators, we couldn't allow them to become sick and not be able to come to work because without them, we couldn't generate. We would not be able to function. Sure. Um, and we supply a very important commodity to the city, to society. Uh, most people take us for granted. We're sort of like the unsung heroes. Um, everyone understands that the medical departments, uh, firemen, first responders, police officers, they're all important people. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that without electricity, society would have a very tough time surviving. So uh, with that being said, we, we, we did learn that um, our assets, our best assets are our actual employees. And uh, everyone stepped up, made changes to their daily routine as required. And um, we got through this uh, with flying colors, I want to say. That's great. And you, you note the essential nature of electricity, and we couldn't agree with you more. And in my former role, I used to be the state chairman uh, of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission. And I like to say that the public always wanted three things. They wanted their lights on, their beer cold, and their water warm. And they always just expect that that's the case. And I think that continues to be true. But I'm curious if you think that you know, working through the pandemic has made the public more aware of how important your job is? Has it given you an opportunity to talk to neighbors or friends about just how important that light switch or that refrigerator is and how important the work that you do to ensure that happens is? Well, it's funny you say that because every time I meet someone new, I bring up that same phrase that when you turn on a light switch, I want you to think of me because I'm behind right. that. You know, <laughs> um, I hope that everyone outside of the power industry has garnered some respect for what we do here and realized that it is a vital asset to surviving and living as comfortably as we do. Um, with that being said, did they actually realize it? I, I can't say. People in this building, 
anyone who's been in the industry, whether it's the pole climbers, whether it's the uh, utility workers out in the street or us power plant folk, we all know and respect, you know, we know what it takes to make power. Um, It's a very tricky dance. Um, Again, it's under extreme conditions. We proudly do it. We wear it as a badge of honor. Um, I would hope the public did become aware of it. As far as impacting the COVID impacting them and making them aware of it. I'm not sure because we kept the lights on. I know here we did. I don't know rest of the country, but here we didn't have a problem. It was a guarantee that light switch was turning on in the morning and uh, shutting off at night without a problem. I would say the station as a whole coming together is probably one of the finest points of my career here that in in adverse conditions, the unknown, everyone was willing to give all they had to make a story, you know, what it is today. The COVID-19 pandemic has been one of the greatest challenges our country and the world has faced. Yet thanks to planning, cooperation, and a lot of sacrifice from dedicated energy workers, Americans were able to enjoy uninterrupted power even during COVID's most uncertain, frightening, and lonely moments. While we don't know when and what our next test of our electric grid will be, we do know that we are doing all we can to support a reliable grid, and that's our number one priority. Thanks for listening to Energy Solutions. You can find more information about EPSA, competitive power generators, and the New York ISO at our website, www.epsa.org. If you liked the episode, please share it on social media or with your coworkers, friends, and family. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at EPSA News, and on LinkedIn. And leave a rating or comment whenever you listen to our podcasts. Energy Solutions is brought to you by the Electric Power Supply Association. EPSA represents America's competitive power suppliers, which bring about 150,000 megawatts of power generation resources to customers throughout the United States. Discover the power of competition at www.epsa.org.